book of the month. Follow the link to buy your copy. It's September and our catechism classes based on the Heidelberg Catechism have recommenced. If you haven't got a copy of the catechism, then I would really urge you to purchase a copy and to keep it and to read it. It will be a worthwhile addition to any library. And a personal paper copy is probably essential for any meaningful study of the plain and practical Christian teachings that the Catechism contains. So for September, the Heidelberg Catechism will be our Book of the Month. Links to buy your copy at just £2.95 can be found on the episode notes during September. Or contact me by email. The email address is bob at bobmacavoy.co.uk September's Book of the Month the Heidelberg Catechism. When you buy a copy, a small amount of the price supports this podcast. Welcome to the Semper Reformata Podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. We're going to look at a very familiar story indeed from the book of Daniel today. And over the past couple of weeks, we've looked at Daniel chapter 1, where we were introduced to the three companions of Daniel, now known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Like Daniel, they had been transported by the victorious King Nebuchadnezzar as children taken from their homes and brought from Jerusalem into captivity in Babylon, where like the other captives of that time, they mourned and wept over the the loss of their homeland. But they were brought into religious and philosophical training to be taught in the ways of the land of Babylon. Their names were changed. They were indoctrinated, as we learned, by the university system of their day, to be like the people of the land. And then they were brought into royal service. And then last week, we saw them again in Daniel chapter 2, when Daniel was threatened with execution, when he confides in them, and they pray together, and those prayers are answered. And now we come again to chapter 3, and we find another account of the faith of these young men, faith under extreme trial. So my topic for this morning is this. We will not bow to idols. We will not bow to idols. In chapter 2, you see, if you remember last week, Nebuchadnezzar had a seriously bad dream. He'd had a nightmare And because none of his advisors, his spads, his privy council, none of them could tell him what the dream was about and what it meant. And he ordered that every one of them should be executed, put to death. And remember that Daniel had organized a prayer meeting and the Lord revealed both the dream and the meaning to Daniel and Daniel relayed it to the king. And remember that we learned that you cannot trust the government's agendas, that your government does not have your best interest at heart. And we learned that that 
statue that the king was dreaming about would be smashed in pieces and that every earthly kingdom in this world set up by men will be destroyed and will come to naught but the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ will endure forever. But now Nebuchadnezzar has had time to think. Remember how he reacted to Daniel's interpretation of his dream. He rewarded him and he promoted him and his three friends. In effect, Daniel has become the prime minister. But what about the dream vision that Nebuchadnezzar had? He's thinking about it now. A bit further down the road, and he's thinking about what Daniel has told him. Do you remember the, the way that he described Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom as being the head of the great statue made of gold, a pure metal, a precious metal? Think what that must have done for Nebuchadnezzar's ego. Remember the dream. Remember the king of Babylon. Remember the great statue. And Nebuchadnezzar is thinking, I'm the head and not the tail. I'm the golden boy. I'm the top of the statue. It's no wonder his ego's getting inflated. Back in 1990, remember the United Kingdom was at war in the Persian Gulf. Saddam Hussein of Iraq was convinced that he was so powerful that he could invade other countries, that no one would dare do anything about it. And Saddam is said to have often referred to himself as a modern successor to Nebuchadnezzar, a sort of modern version. And in his delusions of grandeur, he talked about building a kingdom as great and as extensive as the ancient kingdom of Babylon. He had an ego problem. So had Nebuchadnezzar. So he decided that since he was the golden king, he would make a statue, a giant image, 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide, the Statue of Liberty, uh, which you can see in the way into New York, is 130 feet tall. This statue was almost as tall as that. What size was that? No doubt it could be seen for miles. Most commentators seem to agree that it was a statue that was meant to represent Nebuchadnezzar himself. And he set it up on this plane, the plane of Jura, a large saucer-shaped natural arena just lying south of the city of Baghdad. And he summoned all the important people of the day into his royal presence. And he appointed a day for the dedication of his new idol. If you look back to the beginning of the chapter, chapter 3, you'll see what he says. Chapter 3 and verse 2. Nebuchadnezzar the king sent together, together the princes and the governors and the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counsellors, the sheriffs and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And he gets this ritual 
organized. Whenever all the people, or maybe representatives of all the people, had gathered, representatives from every nation that Nebuchadnezzar had subdued, when they were all gathered together and paying attention, a man would stand up, a herald would stand up, and we see it in verse 3. The princes, the governors, the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces were gathered together unto the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse 4, Then a herald cried aloud. And those were the days before amplification. So what a voice he must have had. And he gave the king's command. Here it is. To you it is commanded, O people, nations and languages. Verse 5. That at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, dulcimer and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king hath set up. Interestingly, the music and the instruments are representative of nations from all over the world, all over Nebuchadnezzar's empire. Even that in his mind is a symbol of his greatness. He's getting music from all across the empire. And there's a threat that if you don't worship this idol of the king, you will be cast, verse 6, whosoever falleth not down and worshipeth shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. So here's your choice. When the band plays, you can bow down and worship, or you can get cast into the fiery furnace, and you'll be cremated alive. Well, let's pause for a minute. I want to make two points of application. And the first is to warn me and to warn you in love not to be like Nebuchadnezzar. Don't think too highly of yourself. That idol was nothing more than self-glorification, wasn't it? You have to watch for that temptation. It's very easy to fall into the same trap even today. You can say, look at me, look at the business I have built up. Built it from scratch. It was just good judgment on my part and sound financial management and it was hard work and look how big it's grown. Or look at my house, look at the square footage I have. Look at the furniture and the, and the interior decor that I have. Look what, me, look what I have built. Ministers aren't immune to that either. Look how big my church is. Look at the budget we have to work with. Have you looked at the last book that I've just written? It's a New, it's a New York Times bestseller. And then comes this truth from Proverbs 16. That pride goes before destruction, before a fall. The second point of application is a challenge to all of us. 
because there are idols being presented to us today and we're being asked to bow down to them. In our present situation, our ego-inflated governors and rulers and governments and ruling classes and the people who run the social media giants, the technocrats, they want us to bow down to their idols. Might be the idol of climate change. Might be the LGBT idol. Might be the trans lobby idol. Not physically, of course, but we're required, they say, not just to accept them, but to celebrate their lifestyles. Only a few years ago, what would be easily recognised as sin? The loudest voices in society at the minute are saying that we should celebrate and teach our children. And we have these drag queens going into libraries right here in the province of Ulster and they're reading stories to children, men dressed in women's clothes telling children stories about the boy in the dress and how his daddy allowed him to dress up as a girl and we're supposed to celebrate that bow down to that idol and if we're hesitant in our enthusiasm or we're so bold as to openly refuse to recognise these modern day idols there will be serious consequences for you you will be accused of being phobic you will be taken to court you will be cancelled you will have your livelihood destroyed. You may have your business ruined. Your bank account might get frozen. Or, for example, in Germany, your children might get taken away. The governments of this world, like Nebuchadnezzar, acting in harmony, set up their idols. And they loudly demand that you bow to them. And they threaten horrible punishments to those who dissent. Let's go back to the story. So the day came and we don't know how many people were gathered in that vast valley that day, that plain, the plain of Jura, but there was a great multitude from all over the world and they were all met with one purpose in mind. They were to bow down and worship the king's idol. And let's be honest, for most of them it was no big deal. Most of them worshipped idols anyway. Most of them worshipped false gods anyway. What's another one? It wasn't a major issue, sure it wasn't. Just a quick bow will be enough. It'll be over and done with. No time at all. And everybody can get back to normal life and the king will be happy. So the man with the big voice stood up. I suppose he must have been on a platform of sorts. And he read out the king's proclamation. And the praise band began to play. And a huge mass bands of all sorts of instruments. And all over the vast plain... People began dropping to their knees to worship the idol, to show their loyalty to the king, to show their willing submission, to show their fear of the furnace. 
everywhere a sea of bodies dropped to the ground. When I was thinking of this, the thought came into my head of one of those scenes that you see in London during Ramadan. You know where they have this open-air Muslim worship, maybe in Hyde Park or one of those great open arenas. And you see photographs of, and videos of all these men standing and at a signal from the front they go down on their knees before the false god Allah. They bow to the ground. And all you can see, quite literally in front of you, is a sea of bottoms. It must have been like that. Everywhere. Everybody's on the ground. Their faces kissing the dust. But wait. Unbelievably. There are three young men still standing. Refusing to buy. Three young Hebrew men. What would you have done in that great crowd? What would I have done? Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego still standing, refusing to buy. Well, that blatant act, highly visible act of disobedience to the royal command wouldn't go unreported, as you can well imagine. Remember that in politics, backstabbing is a constant danger. These young men, foreigners of all things, were in high office in the city of Babylon. They're in positions that others had been ousted from very recently and that they wanted back. They were duly reported. Look at verse 12. And here is this report being taken to the king. There are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not regarded thee. They served not thy gods, nor worshipped the golden image which thou hast set up. So they're dragged into the palace, arrested. They're brought before the king. And at the point where we began to read in verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar is giving them another chance. He's saying to them something like this. Now, now look, Shadrach, Peshach, and Abednego, maybe you didn't understand. But for your sake, we'll just run through this again, okay? We'll do it all again. We'll get the praise band get back together again. And we'll put them up at the front of the big plane. And whenever the praise band begins to play, all you have to do is to bow to the statue, bow to the idol, and everything will be fine. And if you refuse again, it's the death sentence. Now, everything's quite simple. Made it quite clear. Let's go out onto the plane and let's get by. Now here's where we come to their answer. I want you to look at it carefully in verse 16 to verse 18. Because Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. 
four wee simple things that we find here. And the first is that they are not afraid of the king. They're not afraid of the government. Look at the plainness of their answer. Look back for a minute to chapter 2 and verse 4. Here's how the king is normally addressed in Babylon. Chapter 2 and verse 4. Then spoke the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac. That's in Aramaic. O king, live forever. That's the way you address the king. Tell thy servants the dream. You don't just walk into Nebuchadnezzar and start talking to him. You have to buy and scrape before him. You have to give him the official royal greeting. O king, live forever. But they don't do that. Look at what they say. They say, O Nebuchadnezzar, not O king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. Some translations read, we don't even need to reply to this. They're not being rude. They're not being obtuse to the king. They're simply stating that they don't need to think about it. They don't need to debate it among themselves. They don't need to hesitate about whether or not they're going to comply with the king's command. There's no debate here needed. The reason is that they know right there and then that God seeks and demands our obedience. In that passage that we read from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, we read an interesting uh, reference to this, or to this type of thing. Because there we're, we see Jesus telling his disciples, verse 17, Beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in their synagogues, and you shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, and for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. Listen to this. But when they deliver you up, take no thought higher what you shall speak. For it shall be given you in that same hour what ye shall speak. For it is not you that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. Now, I find that interesting. Because the Spirit of God speaks to us through applying the Word of God to our hearts. I tell you this morning... When you have to defend yourself before an evil government, when you have to stand up in court and explain why you're not bowing to the king's idols, if you have read and understood the word of God, the Holy Spirit will be applying it to your hearts and you will speak forth the word without hesitance. You will know what to do. Shadrach Meshach and Abednego knew what God required. They didn't need time. They knew his word. They didn't need time to think about how to word their reply. And they weren't looking for weasel words, a form of words that might be acceptable to all sides. We don't involve ourselves in doublespeak. So they're not afraid of the king. The second thing is that they're not afraid of death. Verse 17. Nebuchadnezzar has threatened them with incineration. Verse 17 says, if it be so. Well, if that's what's going to happen, 
If you decide to put us to death by fire, then so be it. That's what's going to happen. It really is a, a sort of a turn or burn moment for these men, but only in the earthly sense. They're not afraid to die, nor work, nor, nor neither should we be. It is a far more fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, having rejected his offer of mercy in Christ. I tell you, my friends, eternal fire is a far more fearsome prospect than Nebuchadnezzar's overheated incinerator. And we read that in Matthew 10 as well, didn't we? Matthew 10 and verse 28, Jesus said, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So they're not afraid of the king because they know what they have to say because they know the word of God. They're not afraid of death because they know that it is far worse to fall into the hands of the living God than to be put into an incinerator. And thirdly, they have confidence in God. Look at verse 17. And if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. One way or another, he will deliver them. They're saying, if you decide to put us to death by fire, then so be it. But even if the king does his worst, our God is mightier than the earthly king. And even can deliver us from the most extreme and dangerous circumstances. Commentator Matthew Henry says here, it was this that enabled them to look with so much contempt upon death. Death in all its terrors. For they trusted the living God. And that by faith they chose to suffer rather than to sin. They therefore feared not the wrath of the king. But endured because they had an eye to him that is invisible. They're not afraid of the king. They're not afraid of death. They have confidence in God. And the last wee point is that they trust implicitly in the Lord. Verse 18. But if not. Wait a minute. What are they saying here? Our God is able to deliver us. Our God will deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we're still not buying. We're still not buying to idols. Even if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Now here's the really important point. It doesn't actually matter what happens to these three men, or to us. It doesn't matter if the king threatens them or kills them, or whether God in his mercy and his sovereign will steps in and saves them. Even if he does not, they're still not going to disobey God. You're still not going to bow down before a worthless idol. Now why is that so important? Because we modern Christians need to learn this very same lesson. To trust the Lord. Whatever he decides is going to be our lot, our portion in this life. To be like Job 
who said, Even though he slay me, yet will I trust him. I got a letter from a Christian believer who was in great despair. He was praying about a time of great trial and difficulty that he was going through, both him and his family. And in the letter, he sincerely told me that he was at the point where he was losing all faith and confidence in God. After all, no matter how much he prayed, he said, God isn't answering my prayers. Can you see what's wrong with that? Can you see what's different between his attitude and the attitude of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego? See, sometimes God doesn't answer our prayers the way we want him to, or even the way we expect him to. Who are we to question God's will? Even when our path seems dark, even when it's hard to understand. Here's these three Hebrew boys, probably in their early 20s. They're facing certain death by burning alive. And they could stood there and complained and said, God's not hearing our prayers. If God had been hearing our prayers, we wouldn't be here today. We would have been magically lifted out of all our present dangers. We would have declared our victory over this stuff. And we would have by faith overcome all our enemies. But look, there's the, there's the royal guard waiting to take us away. And there's the furnace, and they're heating it up to seven times greater than it should be. And there's death staring me right in the face. And it's going to happen within minutes. And there's no bolt of lightning coming to rescue me. And there's no sign of a miraculous delivery. What are we going to do? Here's what we're going to do. If the Lord delivers us, well and good. See if he doesn't. And the guard comes and they open the door of that incinerator. And they put us inside it. We're still going to trust him. No matter what. And we won't bow to idols. No matter what they do to us. Well, at our next lesson, next week, God willing, we'll see how this works out. And we'll try to figure out why God often saves his people out of danger instead of saving them from danger. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.